choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 259 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Introduction, Part 2. Mercury astronaut Alan Shepard had been off-flight status for years, suffering from an inner ear disorder called Meniere's Syndrome that affected his balance. It was supposed to be incurable. Then, someone told him about a doctor in Los Angeles, and Al took a chance. A small tube was inserted into his ear, draining off the fluid that caused the trouble. He walked into the flight surgeon's office at the Manned Spacecraft Center, asked for a flight physical, passed it with flying colors, and then told Deke Slayton that he wanted to go to the moon. No one could deny that America's first man in space deserved his chance. Deke Slayton gave him Apollo 13. But it was coming up too soon for Shepard to get ready. And in Washington, George Miller was irate that Deke seemed to be playing favorites with an old friend. When Miller ordered Gilruth to get involved, Deke calmed the situation by swapping the Apollo 13 and 14 crews. That decision changed a lot of lives and made for some new space legends. The new crew for Apollo 13 was Jim Lovell, Ken Mattingly, and Fred Hayes. Veteran astronaut Jim Lovell commanded the mission. His experience on Gemini 7 and 12, as well as being one of the first humans to orbit the moon on Apollo 8, made him a logical candidate to lead a rookie crew, and Lovell would be the first man to go to the moon twice, and this time land in the scientifically and geologically interesting Frau Morrow region of the moon. The lunar module pilot was Fred Fredo Hayes, a member of the fifth class of astronauts who had graduated from test pilot school in 1954. Fred knew the lunar module, especially the software, like the back of his hand. Ken Mattingly, the command module pilot, was a favorite at mission control for his in-depth knowledge of every aspect of the business. Mattingly was perhaps the most private man in the astronaut office. Even the other astronauts would not claim to know Ken well. But just before the mission began, things started to go wrong. The weekend before launch, Charlie Duke, the backup lunar module pilot, came down with a case of German measles. He caught it from the child of a friend. 
The NASA doctors said Duke was contagious and his illness had been incubating for two weeks, during which time he had been to meetings and meals with Lovell, Mattingly, and Hayes. Any one of them might also come down with measles in the next two weeks. With less than a week until launch and the culmination of nine months of preparation, Lovell's crew were at the mercy of the doctors, who made daily blood tests and waited for the disease to show itself. The first blood test showed that the rest of the backup crew, as well as Lovell and Hayes, had been exposed to the disease before and thus carried protective antibodies but not Mattingly. By Wednesday, the doctors decided that Lovell and Hayes were probably good to go with the mission, but the doctors were still not sure about Mattingly. They said his blood test showed that he might already be fighting off the disease, and the incubation cycle for German measles was just right for Mattingly to develop the disease during Apollo 13. Furthermore, he could develop a high fever and perhaps have permanent after-effects. In cases like this, NASA's rules were simple. A potentially ill crew member could never be trusted at the helm of a spacecraft. So, by the book, Mattingly would have to be bumped from the flight. Like most pilots, Mattingly had an aversion to doctors. Back then, pilots had a saying, there are only two ways you can walk out of a doctor's office, fine or grounded. More than one astronaut had sneaked off to a private physician who was sworn to secrecy rather than risk seeing a NASA doctor. And, as the week wore on, Mattingly began to feel as though the doctors were not on his side. They were waking him at 6 a.m. to draw blood, and at 5 p.m. they drew more blood. Then they sent him to bed saying, Now, don't worry. And then the next morning they would wake him up and say, It doesn't look like you had a very good night's sleep. The whole process was enough to make anybody doubt his own sanity. Aside from these hassles, Mattingly felt absolutely fine. To him, it was inconceivable that he would be left behind. He thought the doctors would either fill him up with so much gamma globulin he couldn't conceivably get sick, or NASA would postpone the flight until the next launch window in May. His friends were consistently upbeat. If they believed his fate was sealed, they couldn't bring themselves to say so. But by Thursday, Dr. Chuck Berry was recommending that Mattingly be pulled off the flight and that his backup, Jack Swigert, be sent in his place. Also on Thursday, Swigert was being put through his paces in the command module simulator, and Deke Slayton was keeping a close eye on his work. Deke really had three choices. Delay the flight by 28 days, replace the whole crew, or just replace Mattingly. Deke didn't want to pull the whole crew so late in the training cycle, nor did he want to delay the flight 
with all the costs and preparations that had been made to launch on April 13th. So the easiest thing to do was replace Mattingly with Swigert. But before he made the decision, he wanted to talk it over with a few people. One of the people he spoke with was Apollo 15 astronaut Dave Scott. Scott thought it was too close to launch to switch command module pilots. He knew Mattingly had a great reputation, but he didn't know Swigert at all. But Scott did know the backup crew had little access to simulators over the previous few weeks. In the immediate lead-up to a launch, the prime crew got priority with everything. Also, teamwork was important. Scott believed Lovell and Hayes would have trust issues with Swigert, especially when Swigert would have to dock the command module to the lunar module all by himself when Lovell and Hayes returned from the moon. Scott also didn't think Jack Swigert was ready, not from a personal performance point of view, but from a training point of view. However, mission control personnel disagreed with Scott. During the pre-mission meetings and in training, they had spent a lot of time with the backup crews. So Jack Swigert was no stranger to the mission controllers. In their judgment, after two days of refresher training, he would be ready to go. When Deke told Jim Lovell what he wanted to do, Lovell went ballistic. Keep in mind, Lovell had been training with this crew for the better part of a year. Now, Jim said, you want to change the crew now? So close to liftoff because of some possible bug? How long is the incubation period for this thing? Jim said, About ten days to two weeks, Dr. Barry answered. So, he'd be healthy at liftoff, Lovell said. Yes. And healthy when we get to the moon, yes? Then what's the problem, Lovell said. If he starts running a fever when Fred and I are down on the surface, he can take that whole time to get over it. If he's not better by then, he can just sweat it out on the flight home. I can't think of a better place to have the measles than in a nice cozy spaceship. The flight surgeon stared incredulously at Lovell, waited for him to finish his pitch, then thumbed maddeningly out of the lineup. Lovell was strongly opposed to the switch. The launch was only a few days away, but he didn't want to delay the flight or get his whole crew switched to a later flight that might not even occur. Ultimately, it was Jim Lovell's call. He could fly with Swigert or not fly at all on Apollo 13. The final decision was made. Lovell chose to fly with Swigert, and for Mattingly, the handwriting was on the wall. Swigert was now getting all the simulator time. Mattingly had little to do, and he could only go running for so many miles on the Space Center's roadbeds. Slayton suggested he go flying. So Mattingly drove to Patrick Air Force Base and did just that for a couple hours in a T-33. Afterward, he considered breaking the pre-mission medical quarantine to cheer himself up with some Dunkin' Donuts. Those and the barbecue sandwiches at Fat Boys were his main weakness at the Cape. But he decided against it. 
He was wearing his blue NASA flight suit, so surely he would be recognized. Heading back to the Space Center, Ken turned on the car radio in time to hear a newscast. NASA had announced that it had replaced one of the three astronauts of Apollo 13, Thomas K. Mattingly. Suddenly, it was real. Mattingly was furious to find out this way. But he wasn't about to blame anyone, especially not Deke. By the time he had reached the crew quarters, he had accepted the news. Jim and Fred were still over in the simulator, and everyone else reacted to Mattingly's presence with an awkward silence. Mattingly didn't have any more idea of what to say than they did. Slayton asked him what he wanted to do, and Mattingly answered that he needed to get away from the launch. Fine, Slayton said. He could grab an airplane and fly home that evening. After dinner, Mattingly wished Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert good luck. When he arrived at Patrick Air Force Base, a T-33 was on the ramp, ready and waiting. Flying through the early spring night, Mattingly was surprised to find the normally concise air traffic controllers calling him on the radio and chatting up a storm. He realized they were trying to make sure that he was awake. When he landed at Ellington, the ground crew was already waiting to take care of his airplane. He had only to get in his car and go home. And he realized that Deke Slayton must have quietly arranged for all of this. It was just the kind of thing Deke would do and never acknowledge. So it happened. Ken Mattingly was most unhappy and vocal in his comments at the resulting press conference. He was just days from the greatest moment of his life and got sucker punched by fate or so he believed. Though Lovell was fiercely loyal to his command module pilot, his new crew member was no slouch. At 38, Jack Swigert was previously best known, mostly, for being the only unmarried astronaut ever accepted into the NASA Corps. In the early 1960s, when image was so important, this was unthinkable. But, as the nation's attitudes loosened up in the late 1960s, so did NASA's. The tall crew-cut Swigert had the reputation, good-naturedly tolerated by the agency, of a rambunctious bachelor with an active social life. Whether this was true or not was unknown, but Swigert did what he could to perpetuate the image. His Houston apartment included a fur-covered recliner, a beer spigot in the kitchen, wine-making equipment, and a state-of-the-art stereo system. NASA was willing to indulge all these less-than-upright distractions because Swigert was also a highly competent, fiercely confident pilot. He had trained devotedly for his understudy role on 13, and, after being shifted up to the prime crew, was put through a meat grinder of more rigorous drills. During the course of the previous year, the original crew members had become so accustomed to working with one another that Lovell and Hayes had even learned to interpret the nuances and inflections in Mattingly's voice, a valuable skill at those moments in the flight when the two lunar module pilots 
would have to rely on command module pilots' shouted commands alone to steer their lander to a safe rendezvous. After Mattingly was bumped, it took several simulator drills before NASA and the astronauts themselves were convinced that the new prime crew could work together as efficiently as the old one had. Just 48 hours before liftoff, Swaggart was certified fit to fly. The only remaining problem the flight planners faced now was the need to manufacture a new commemorative plaque to be attached to the outside of the lunar module. Already bolted in place on the lander's forward leg was a decorative panel bearing the engraved names of the three prime crewmen. In its place, a new snap-on plaque would have to be milled, reflecting the last-minute change in personnel. The only problem Swigert himself now faced, as the newspapers delighted in reporting, was that with all the sudden hubbub, he had forgotten to file his federal income tax. The return was due, of course, on April 15th, which was four days after launch, or about the time this particular taxpayer would be in orbit around the moon. Swigert decided simply to put the problem out of his head, figuring he would work something out when he got home. For all its promise, the mission of Apollo 13 was never one that seized the imagination of the country. For pure drama, there were plenty of other things you could pay attention to in the spring of 1970 than the adventures of what by now was the fifth and sixth men who would walk on the moon. On April 9th, two days before the scheduled launch, the New York Times made no mention of the mission, devoting front-page coverage to the U.S. Senate's surprise rejection of President Nixon's latest Supreme Court nominee, Judge G. Harold Carswell. Elsewhere in the news that week was the announcement of an 11-month high in Southeast Asian casualty figures. There was the introduction of an ingeniously packaged women's hosiery product called Legs. There was a revelation by Paul McCartney that he was experiencing personal difficulties with the other three Beatles and had decided to leave the band. And, of course, there was the opening of baseball season. The first significant mention of Apollo 13 in the Times that week was on April 10th, the day before the flight, on page 78, the weather page. On the other hand, the media would have better access to the events of Apollo 13 than it ever had in the previous missions. The press had been lobbying since 1965 to be allowed in mission control during flights. Chris Kraft refused from the day they moved mission control to Houston, believing that reporters watching over the controller's shoulders would be a distraction they didn't need. According to Kraft, public affairs had its console in the control center and over the years did a consistently good job following mission progress for the news media. The one concession Kraft had made was to let reporters into the viewing room during practice sessions and simulations. 
Kraft believed it would be an extraordinary education for them, and they would be better equipped to write about the real thing. But only a few reporters accepted that offer. By Apollo 13, Kraft believed his flight controllers were solid and experienced. Most of them knew the major reporters by first name, had been through scores of press conferences, and were not the least intimidated by being watched. That viewing room in the rear of Mission Control had filled up with NASA executives, politicians, and astronauts' families anyway. On the floor of Mission Control, they had learned to ignore them. So NASA changed the policy. The new rule was to allow one print reporter and one television reporter to serve as a pool for the rest of the press and allow them into Mission Control for key events. In addition, NASA added a pool slot for emergencies in case they ever occurred. The World's Press Corps selected Jim Schefter from Time Life and NBC's Roy Neal as the only reporters they trusted to watch an emergency unfold and report it accurately. Schefter was one of the few reporters who had accepted the offer to sit through Mission Control's simulations, and he had actually read the mission rules. Schefter and Roy Neal would soon be tested. But strangely, what stirred the most media and public interest in this mission involved an almost morbid fascination with the numeral of this particular Apollo. All of the Mercury flights had used the number 7 in their names, Faith 7, Friendship 7, Sigma 7, etc. In honor of the seven astronauts who made up the team, Manned Gemini capsules had started counting at Gemini 3, but stopped after 10 flights at Gemini 12. Manned Apollo missions had started at Apollo 7, and with 14 manned flights planned, NASA knew it would have to confront an Apollo 13 eventually. Bringing one of humanity's greatest scientific endeavors eyeball to eyeball with one of its most enduring superstitions, had an irresistible appeal. And most people applauded the hubris, the arrogance of flying the mission anyway, and even embroidering a big, loud Roman numeral 13 on the patches of the suits the astronauts would be wearing throughout the flight. During the weeks before the launch, the public went on a sort of 13 scavenger hunt, looking for numerical omens portending disaster for the flight. The flight was scheduled to begin on April 11, 1970, or 4-11-70. If you add four, two ones, a seven, and a zero, you get 13. Liftoff was planned for 1:13 Houston time, which, if that wasn't bad enough, is 13.13 military time. If the launch took place on schedule, the ship would pass into the moon's gravitational field on April 13th. Now NASA found all this voodoo laughable in the extreme, and so did Jim Lovell. As far as the commander of the mission was concerned, 
His trip to Frau Moro was a scientific expedition. No more, no less. There was no room for a lot of superstitious claptrap. And the motto he chose for the official mission patch reflected that belief. Harkening back to his Annapolis days, Lovell borrowed the Navy's motto, Ex Tridens Scientia, which means from the sea knowledge, and changed it slightly to Ex Luna Scientia. To Lovell, the acquisition of knowledge seemed like a pretty good reason to make a lunar trip. The crew named their command module Odyssey and got the name of their lunar module from a popular song of their time. The song, Aquarius, sung by the group called the Fifth Dimension. It was meant to be symbolic of the energy and momentum of the Apollo lunar program. The song's signature words, This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, symbolized the first mission of the new decade as well as the challenge and excitement of the increasingly difficult and risky lunar missions. Salutations from the sweltering foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 259 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13 Introduction Part 2. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. A couple of weeks ago, I added some more episodes to the Archive podcast, so we now have the first 1 through 71 episodes available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute the Soyuz-level donors. There are 23 so far this year. Soyuz donors contribute $30 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Soyuz donors. Okay, I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. I want to credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Flight by Chris Kraft. Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott and Alexei Leonov. And Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. Okay, during my research, I found some minor discrepancies between my sources in some of the aspects of the events I described in this episode, particularly on how and when Mattingly found out that he lost his seat on Apollo 13. Ultimately, I decided to go with the Andrew Chaikin version of events. But I did want you to know that there are some minor discrepancies on the timing and how Mattingly found out. But the most important thing I was trying to communicate, of course, is Mattingly was replaced on the flight by Swigert. Now, another thing to keep in mind, 
is what I described throughout this mission may be slightly different from the popular movie Apollo 13 directed by Ron Howard. In fact, if you want to know where the movie took artistic license, I can highly recommend watching the movie while playing the Lovell Commentary tract. Now that commentary is available on the Blu-ray version of the movie. I'm not sure if it is on the DVD or not. In fact, I got a new copy of it at Walmart for about 5 or $6 a few weeks ago. I believe it is the best commentary of any movie I have ever watched. So if you are looking for historical accuracy, I highly recommend listening to that commentary. One of the things that Lovell mentioned on the commentary was uh, Swigert, he believed, was really done an injustice by the movie because Swigert was very well qualified and a competent pilot. And also he mentioned that the argument between Hayes and Swigert never happened. It was just something that was added to make it more interesting. The only, now, the only way I watch this movie is with the commentary track. So Jim Lovell and his wife's on there too can tell me exactly when the movie is historically accurate and when it took artistic license. I think most people can empathize with Mattingly getting the rug pulled out from under him so close to the launch. Something he had worked so hard for such a long time snapped away just before it was set to begin. Now I also can understand NASA's position. It was too much of a risk to put a potentially sick astronaut in a position where he would have to dock the lunar module all by himself after Lovell and Hayes returned from the moon. But, you know what? I think Mattingly came out a lot better not being on Apollo 13. And he will get his chance to go. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive five donations to support the podcast over the past week. Kent K. from Ohio donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned his rocket emoji. Snook Light Point in Florida donated at the Apollo level. Mickey R. donated at the Sputnik level. Hepe F. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Addy S. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. I hope I didn't mispronounce anybody's name, but if I did, I'm very sorry. Our Patreon donors are still at 172 with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our total donors for 2018 have reached 281 with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. 
All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we have something new. It is a three-inch round Space Rocket History new logo refrigerator magnet. That's right. It is the new logo created by listener Jason C. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Rosemary Watson. Rosemary Watson, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I hope to have episode 260 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.